With the image of his childhood hero, Davis Finney, perched atop a podium etched clearly in his mind, the town bull Anton Toro embarks on a pro-cycling career that takes him around the world as a workhorse for the famed U.S. Postal Squad. Sharing midnight steaks in a German pub with Greg LeMond and riding for Lance Armstrong in the Tour of Spain, and doing it all clean, completely free of the substances that would mar the cycling world for years to come. Join us on a tour through the mind of a boy born in war-torn Guatemala, relocated by a single mother to Kansas, and celebrated by a grandfather who would give him a gift that would change his life forever. So if you're ready for the show, crank it up and let's go. Welcome to the Athlinks Podcast. I am your host, Troy Busso, coming to you from the sun-covered hills of Broomfield, Colorado. It is December 9th, 2020, and this is episode 19. What's up, Anton? Hey, what's up, Troy? How are you? God dang, you get better looking every single time I see you. <laughs> oh, thank you. What the hell's in the water out there in San Diego? Pretty cold this time of year. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's just downright frigid. Yeah, that's actually my new sport is stand-up paddleboarding. I love it. Oh, so, there you go. Cool. Yeah. That's tougher in the ocean, I found out. Yeah, it's, you know, you try not to drown is my motto. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So on the show today, we have Anton Villatoro. Um, You know, Anton, you've worn so many hats in your career. Professional cyclist, founder of the Denver Marathon, uh, director of operations for uh, competitor group CGI. Um, Anything else you want to add now? Entrepreneur. Well, you've always been an entrepreneur, but uh, coffee entrepreneur. Anything you want to add to your little bio here? I just always say that I was cursed as an entrepreneur and yeah. uh, no one, no one in their right mind would choose this path, yeah. <laughs> especially during these unprecedented times, as they say. Yeah. Well, I've been super lucky to have you in my, uh, in my life, in my professional career for, I don't know, maybe the last decade or so. I have uh, more than one incriminating photo of the two of us at a running USA Uh-oh. or a triathlon <laughs> business or one of these running conferences where we end up drinking too much uh, wine oh, or no. tequila or both on a given night. So it's great to catch up with you again. All right. Well, don't let anyone see that photo. <laughs> <laughs> no, no it, it's it's kept private in, the, in those, those private folders. So yeah, all good. All good. I promise your, your secrets are safe. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a really interesting... Um, backstory life you again you've you've worn a ton of hats you were born um not in this country you were born in guatemala um in kind of war-torn guatemala at the time um tell us about that a little bit and just kind of your childhood growing up and then how you ended up here in the united states well the rumor has it my mom and dad met at uh ku kansas university okay and uh, my dad was an exchange student he was um, they're from Guatemala, 100% Guatemala, and my mother was from a small uh, farm town in uh, Kansas, right outside of Dodge City, Kansas. And uh, they met at Margarita Night, and as the story goes, they, uh, you know, ended up together. And my mom moved to Guatemala with my father, had my sister. Four years later, had me. And uh, yeah, this is during the 1970s. It was, you know, com- brutal time of uh the history of that country over 250,000 dead in the uh civil war that um my father was actually working at the US embassy at the time mm. and he would actually bring some of his american friends back to our house and uh 
you know, to protect them from assassination. And, wow. uh, and uh, my, my mom, who's from a little town with one stoplight, she's like, what are you doing? You're bringing <laughs> all these people into our home and endangering our family. Yeah. So um, it's crazy time. So obvious question, why, why uh, like, did your mom know what she was getting into going back to Guatemala? Was she kind of naive or why did they go back to Guatemala instead of staying in Kansas or somewhere else? Uh, good question. I don't know. I think uh, partly the Latin culture of, yeah. you know, the guys in charge. And yeah. I think, um, you know, my mom had her degree and um, so she was different at that time for, a woman to have her college degree and then be yeah. in a Latin country. So, um, but, you know, she reared the kids and, and did a great job. And, and then my dad was working really hard all the time. And, you know, I still remember going to uh, work in bulletproof cars, his work, I should say, not my yeah. work. I was 10 years old wow. and uh, still remember going by bullet riddle cars and the guy slipped over the, the, the steering wheel that's got to be uh, a trip for a kid. Blood splattered all over the front, you know, windshield. And I'm just sitting there looking at it like, oh, gosh. <laughs> you said 10 so, years old. So you were, okay, I thought you were a little bit older when you when you moved out of there, or younger, rather. So you, <clears throat> what time did you, or what? I was how, born there. I was born there, and then I came to the U.S. when I was 10. Okay, got it. Yeah. Got it. Back yeah. to Kansas? Yeah. My mom put my sister and I on an airplane and told my dad that, uh, you know, we're going to go visit my grandparents. Oh. And then uh, basically the, the next day she said, uh, they're not coming back and I'm leaving tomorrow. Wow. And so my mom basically came back. Um, I lived with my grandparents for a year. And uh, as the story goes, my the first thing my grandfather did to spoil me was he took me to a Walmart <laughs> and he bought me a, uh, a Huffy, cool. you know, BMX bike. And, uh, yeah, so I fell in love with bikes. Wow, you know, what, what was at that the, moment? Well, I mean, what was the biking scene uh, in war torn Guatemala at the time? Like, could a kid even have a bike? Or like, no, 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 no. Okay, like, were I you? Mean, would you play outside and things? No. Was life even remotely normal for a child? <laughs> no, I mean, no. we had you know ten foot concrete walls, barbed wire, and glass on top. We had a guard with a machine gun at the front door, and wow. you know two guard dogs, you know, it was, you know, and you'd hear bombs in the middle of the night, that sort of thing. So uh, no, we weren't, we, we weren't riding bikes in uh, yeah. Guatemala. Yeah. So and, you're, uh, you're as tough as, as tough as moving away from your dad was, <laughs> you get this kick-ass little BMX bike and you're like, okay, all right. I see what well, we one got thing, going yeah, on one, So when I went to uh, Kansas, it, the town has 18 or I think 1800, um, you know, population 1800. Yeah. One stoplight, one truck stop, one Pizza Hut, one Sonic drive-in, and that's that's it. That's it. And uh, one thing I'd never experienced is that there were no walls between the houses. Yeah. Like you could jump bush over bush and, like, go see your friends and ring the doorbell and say, hey, you want to go play? Wow. And uh, so we'd stay out till like, 9 o'clock at night, um, you know, uh, building BMX ramps and stuff like that. Yeah, total <laughs> mind bender for you at this time and – I think probably just even to hear like the silence of a Kansas evening had to have been a little unnerving, maybe even. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, my grandfather, he was the, he was the president of the bank in Guatemala or in uh, Mead, Kansas, and they lived a calm life and yeah. he had all the time in the world for me, you know, thought I was a great little athlete and 
you know, he's the one that took me fishing, took me to the Royals Yankees games. He's the one that signed me up for T-ball and uh, really just ignited my passion for sports. That's awesome. So did you, when did you, um, <clears throat> from trying to think of what the, like, I remember there were, they, there was BMX, uh, courses and things when I was like, uh, you and I are about the same age growing up in Phoenix, there were some BMX courses and that was kind of a deal at the time, but like, was it, was it a formal thing at the time for you or were you guys just kind of carving out some dirt trails in, in a, like an empty lot kind of thing? Well, my mother ended up getting a uh, teaching job teaching Spanish in Colorado Springs. Okay. And uh, so obviously that's where the Olympic trainer training center is located. Okay. And uh, so I fell in love with BMX when that same bike that my grandfather bought me got a flat tire and she took me to a local bike shop and, uh, you know, bought a $3 bike tube yeah. and put it on the, the register, the countertop. And, and I saw a magazine called BMX action. And I saw these guys flying over jumps and racing bikes with number plates. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Wow. And so being the great mother my mom is, you know, she signed me up and, uh, and you know, I wasn't that great at the time. I was 12 years old and I just was having fun, you know, yeah. ripping around a dirt BMX track. And so I did that for four years. Yeah. Was Colorado the way it is now where like you were probably racing against some ex Olympians kid and stuff? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, Colorado is, it's a tough place to bike race. Yeah, you is. know, I think that's, uh, to, to reach a high level of, of the sport or real, probably any sport, but certainly endurance sports. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, everyone thinks that you have to be, to be good. You have to live in Colorado. So a lot of, a lot of the, uh, athletes do move there either because they're Olympic hopefuls or, you know, in my case with cycling, you know, the Seven Eleven team with road cycling, they're the ones that kind of, you know, use Boulder, Colorado as yeah. their training ground. So. Yeah. I've dabbled yeah. in cyclocross a little bit since I moved up here and I can't tell you the number of people that I've met in the, you know, cat five category who tell me like, yeah, I was in North Carolina. I was a cat three or whatever, you know, and I move up here and it's like, I can't hang. So it just instantly <laughs> yeah. dropping down to cat five. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great place to be, you know, not just the altitude, but fresh outdoors, lots of mountains, lots of di different terrain. You know, you have the, the Rocky mountains, but then you also have flat days if you need it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're 12 years old, you're ripping up the BMX courses. <clears throat> At what point do you start to sense that you've got some talent for this or did you like go off and do other sports at the time? The only other thing I did really was, you know, I was a diver because I, I used to show off, uh, on the diving board to my grand in, in that small town and yeah. do flips and dives and all that. So, you know, and I, you know, I tried to be the popular kid at one point and, you know, I signed up for the football team and, you know, came home with concussions and uh, I was like, okay, you know, it was one of the toughest decisions I made at that time was yeah. quitting the football team, but you know, obviously you. no, and my physique, I mean, they, they were using me as a punching bag. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, so I gravitated towards the sport that I felt like I could control my own destiny. Okay. You know, and that was cycling at the time. And at the time I didn't realize what a team sport cycling actually is. So, you know, I kind of thought if you ride hard and, you know, win bike races and that's, that's great. But then as you get obviously in the higher ranks and there's, yeah. 
it's definitely very much a team sport. Yeah, we'll talk about the the higher ranks and the team aspects of that in a minute. I'm sure we'll get into that. So, um, so you're riding the BMX stuff at, um, like, are you jumping into sanctioned races? Are you traveling at all? Or, or like, again, like when, when do you start figuring out that you're, cause you're not like, I'm assuming, well, maybe that's the question is at what point do you start really, um, distinguishing yourself on two wheels? Well, I don't know if, that, that comes a little later, but I think um, at what point do I become enamored with road cycling? And that was my freshman year of, uh, of uh, college at okay. CU Boulder. Okay. And uh, it was, you know, August of 1988, and it was a Coors Classic, which mm-hmm. was the last year of that race. Um, and Davis Finney yeah, yeah. was my total hero. And... Um, you know, I was, I was kind of moving into the dorms uh, freshman year of college, and I realized the final stage of the course classic was happening right there, and all the legends from Europe were there at the time. And um, I just went over, and I saw Dave Finney on the podium, <laughs> and he won it. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, you know, it was, that's, that's really what really ignited my, my love for road cycling. Wow. Okay. So at that point, I, you know, signed up with the uh, intramural um, cycling club of uh, CU Boulder. And that's where I met Tyler Hamilton. And, um, but it was just a, you know, intramural, you know, club sport. It wasn't like a varsity yeah. sport or there were no scholarships or anything like that. It was just, um, just show up and ride your bike. <laughs> so, did, did you have a sense that you were pretty good at this point or did, or were you just like, that's just what I want to do and therefore <clears throat> I'm going to do it? Well, I, I mean, because of the BMX, I always had really good bike handling skills, yeah. you know, so that I was confident in. Um, but I think, you know, I wasn't sure how far I was going to be able to take, you know, the actual road bike. Yeah. Um, but that same season, um, I upgraded, you know, there's an upgrading system in the USA cycling program and you start out at the bottom of the totem pole and work your way up. So I started as a category four and, uh, you know, within two months I was a category two. So immediately I was racing, you know, the pros like Davis Finney. So the guy that I was looking up to, I was racing against him after two months and getting my ass whooped completely (laughs) for two, for two years, actually. I almost quit. I was, uh, so I was in the business school at CU. I was delivering Chinese food, living in the dorms and getting my ass whooped by Davis Finney. Wow. Was it and, for you uh, at that point where you, you said you almost quit? Would you like, would you have quit before you dropped down back down to cat four and just ridden for the love of it? Or cause were you getting paid at this point? No. Yeah. No, you just get free, free gear, you know, yeah. free bikes and stuff. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wasn't getting paid. No, yeah. I was just doing it for the love of sport and yeah. just trying to be the best athlete that I could be. So, yeah. So you'd kick yeah. around that for a couple of years. Yeah, but it's expensive. You know, the, the entry fees are 50 bucks and gas money. And, you know, yeah. we're all, you know, in our early 20s. And so you're kind of living, you know, prize money to prize money. So it literally sometimes came down to like, I need to win the sprint <laughs> so I can get enough money to make it to the next bike race. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's pretty cutthroat, you know, especially like we mentioned earlier in Colorado. It's, you know, 
lot of good guys come out of there. And that's the time when Bobby Julik was racing with us and again, Tyler Hamilton and a bunch of other great riders. Yeah. And so when do you start breaking through into those ranks and starting to think about, okay, you know, I, I made it to my next race and my next race and my next race. And do you, you just start building fitness and strength and tactics and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, well, I think, you know, in the sport of cycling, once you, or any sport, I imagine once you start beating the pros and you get their attention or yeah. the attention of the team management and, uh, but, you know, at that point, I was like, you know what, I, I have my college degree. I'm going to just, uh, yeah, like, forget this. You know, I need to, I need to make some money. And it, it became a struggle. And so I actually went to go work for a sunglass uh, rep company that repped Ray-Ban and Keller Loop sunglasses leading up to the 96 Olympics. Okay. And, uh, so I knew all the managers because, uh, I even, you know, I would fly to Europe and I was doing deals with, uh, you know, Michael Johnson's agent, Trek okay. field, yeah. uh, Gwen Torrance, uh, all these like gold medal winners in track and field. And then I was also meeting with all the, uh, the cycling agents and, you know, meeting with Miguel Enderane and all these guys. So, uh, that was kind of what helped me to open the doors that I was able to, because, you know, trust me, I was just as good as it, you know, 200 other guys in line behind me, but I knew all the managers. Got it. And so, uh, leading up to the 96 Olympics, I thought, you know what, I have, I have dual citizenship. So why don't I try out for the U S team, the Guatemala team. Mm. And, uh, and so I realized at that point that I had something marketable here. I am sponsoring athletes going into the Olympics, but yeah. yet, I had the chance to also do the same thing. Yeah. And so that's where I set my, my goal on trying to get into the 96 games. Okay. And so you, you actually tried out for us and Guatemalan teams. That's right. Yep. Okay. Yep. How'd that go? And, uh, uh, well, (laughs) I qualified for Guatemala. I, um, you know, I won the time trial and the road race and, and I was the leader on the team. Yeah. Was that kind of, uh, was there some controversy there with like this, this, this American coming down there and, and, uh, like trying out for the team? I mean, you had the citizenship, but you hadn't lived there in 10 years kind of thing where, did you catch any flack for that? Yeah. And I, you know, I feel like that on both, both in both places, actually, to be honest, you know, I think because I look more American, whatever that means, you know, I think down there, um, I still speak Spanish fluently, but Obviously, I have an accent, a gringo accent now. Yeah. I do speak to my father in English, and he answers me in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's um, so when I'm in Guatemala, they thought it was kind of not cool that, you know, an American was coming down there to win their Olympic trials. Yeah. Because I, but I'm like, hey, I was born here. My dad's like, you know, but basically the way I, I've, it's the first time I actually experienced like reverse discrimination. Yeah. You know, and um, and then here, um, I've also not always felt, you know, American and that just I grew up in a different country. Interesting. So that's uh, interesting. But yeah, it's it's kind of cool. But it's uh, but I, you know, I ended up proudly representing Guatemala in the Olympics. And then leading up to that, actually, before I even knew that I had made the team, I I made a hit list of all the managers on the pro circuit. 
And I called the number one team on that list, and that was the U.S. Postal Team, Mark Gorski, and uh, and he knew that at least he could put me in front of sponsors and the camera, yeah. and I could be the marketing guy. I think is what I always kind of yeah. <laughs> jokingly say. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, yeah, it's pretty funny. the The article that you sent over to me said something <clears throat> to the effect of like you. Um, Oh, what did it say? It was like you you lucked onto a team or or something like that, or you yeah. were, you know something yeah. like that. Is that what is that what the article was referring to there? Yeah, I didn't like that use of the word. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say that was kind of like man, that was that's harsh. Yeah, no, I think um, you know I think my my story and my point is that there's more to success and there's more to performance than you know the data and yeah. what your power meter is reading. I think. You know, one thing that I've always tried to focus on is the full comprehensive kind of perspective on what it takes to be the best possible version of yourself in life. Mm. And for me that for cycling at the time, it was, you know, how do you travel well and pack and, you know, relationships and friendships and family and, you know, it's, there's Sponsors. so much, yeah, there's just so much more involved than, you know, than, than really just trying to be like, Oh, I got to read my power meter and read my data yeah. and all that. Like, it doesn't matter. I mean, there were, there were guys that would kick my ass in training all the time, but then when it came down to the, you know, the big races, they, you know, they were never in the front group. Mm. So it just, you got to do everything else right. Yeah. You know, in order to be, to really get to that level. And that's what I've applied in my own personal life as well. So, yeah, I guess you're, as you said, there's probably 200 guys out there with similar wattage and similar, you know, abilities to, you know, bike handling skills and all that stuff. And then it becomes the the <clears> next <throat> rung down is all the intangibles. How, how good a teammate are you, are you, how can you get along with another guy as a roommate in a hotel and in a country you don't speak the language of and all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know for a fact there were guys that were far more talented than I was or, um, genetically gifted, if you will. Yeah. Um, but you know, in fact, one of the BMX guys I raced, he used to come home with forefoot trophies and he tried road cycling for his parents would drive him everywhere to Texas, Oklahoma. And, you know, his, uh, he had everything handed to him mm. and, uh, he did two road races and got his ass kicked and never came back. Never came you back. Know, it's like, yeah, just, but for me, I was a dishwasher in high school and had yeah. a paper route and like, I knew no one, I had no backstop. I didn't, have a safety net or anything. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting because like endurance sports, the life of a pro, I think we all look at, you know, guys like Lance and <clears> things <throat> like that and, and see the glamorous side. But, um, I had Anthony Famoletti on who was an Olympic steeplechaser and he was explaining where he was basically living on a mattress with like just a sheet, not even the fitted sheet in Flagstaff, Arizona, eating out of the vending machine um, you know, like for yeah. six months or something, just trying to put it all together. And so when you couple that with, I mean, the reality is like cycling, and I think it's because you're not pounding the rest of your body, but cycling turns you inside out like no other sport does. Like there's no amount of suffering, I think, that you can do in any other sport that feels quite like the suffering I feel on a bike, right? And so how, like what's the, what's the draw of being 
a pro cyclist and we'll get into like how you experienced professional cycling and, you know, the team that you were on, um, you mentioned us postal, which was Lance's team at the time. Um, but like, what's the draw walk me through, you know, like your the day in the life of a pro cyclist, what's the allure? What's the, like, it seems like such a romantic notion that rarely ever has the, the same kind the of benefits. happy ending on the, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good point. I mean, I, you know, I, to this day, will look back and think how naive I was, you know, to look at those magazine covers mm. of those guys doing Paris-Roubaix with mud in their face and cow manure. And it looked like, wow, I want to do that. Yeah. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask no. you specifically no, about Paris-Roubaix. You know, yeah. Yeah. No, was, it's just, you know, it, I think that, you know, I don't know how to answer your question, Troy, but, yeah. you know, I think that, you know, everyone has dreams and yeah. for whatever reason, it was my dream to be able to experience that same thing. And I did. And so I can uh, say that I, that I've been there and done that, but yeah, yeah it's, it's not as glamorous as it looks on the cover of a magazine. Yeah. It, if it, um, you know, you look at like a, a, the lowest paid guy on a football roster, let's say in the NFL is, I think they make like 300 grand a year or something. Like if, if the conditions were better, if the pay was better, if um, maybe it was more Americanized or what, like under what conditions does it start to all of a sudden become, wow, that's, you know, that is a career. And that's something that, you know, coming out of college, you can spend 10 years really pursuing you know, not for the rest of your life, obviously, but like what needs to, I guess, in your mind for, uh, from the American perspective, like what's the, what's the thing that has to happen with cycling to where it gets to be this thing you're willing to suffer through as not the top guy, you know, you're not the Tom Brady or the Lance Armstrong on the team. Well, cycling is, you know, largely a blue collar sport Mm. in Europe and you know, I, and even when it goes back to the doping story, you know, I don't blame some of the guys for doing, making the decisions that they've made for themselves and their family. Because if you think of some of their alternatives, it would have been to work in a Belgian factory like their father and their great grandfather. Got it. You know, and I think that, you know, here in the US, the economics are different for mm. largely. And, you know, when you come out of, you know, CU Boulder with a business degree, like, do you really need to go there or do right. that? you know, at what point is it just not, is it not worth it? You yeah. know? And I think it's just largely a cultural thing. So I, I personally, I'm not sure that the U S will ever get cycling. Mm-hmm. I don't know that, you know, it's ever going to be, have the following, um, post Lance that, you know, like a Tom Brady has, Yeah. you know, just because I don't think that people quite get it. And I think that, you know, until it becomes more mainstream, it's, it's just, yeah. it's going to be, it's not going to get there. Well, so. Americans, I think are, are pretty myopic in their own Americanism in terms of, you know, if like a Tyler Finney or some, you know, another American goes over there and, and sort of, um, I don't know that they have to win seven tours necessarily, but, um, I think it is generally speaking, uh, like you have to be able to identify with the people that you're rooting for. And that's right. And that's a big disconnect, I think for, um, 
for Americans in general. But I mean, it's, uh, and I think too, as Americans, like they just see, um, they see cycling as something they do, not something they watch, you know, That's in right. general. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty boring to watch because you know what's, what's happening. Yeah. Or if you yourself know what those guys might be experiencing or, because there's so many different dynamics. It's like a chess match happening on the road at the same time. So, yeah, you know, it's really hard to, even for myself to explain it to my daughters, like, okay, that guy's going for the yellow Jersey and that guy doesn't really care because he's going for the green Jersey. And they're like, well, what's the polka dot Jersey mean? I thought that was, uh, <laughs> or the, what's the white Jersey. Yeah. Or anyway. So yeah, yeah there's, there's all sorts of, so Yeah. You're always careful to point out. I think anytime I see um, your name associated with Postal is is always like, you know, I raced for Postal and I raced clean. And so, um, which is kind of, you know, I mean, well, it's not kind of a bummer. It's a big bummer in that you're the outlier that has to sort of put the asterisk next to your name as the clean rider instead of the other guys putting the asterisk next to their names as the as the not right. clean riders, how, right. like, was it ever a, was it in your face to the point where you made a conscious decision to say, I'm not doing that? Or was it sort of, uh, in, in back rooms where you suspected things were going on, but, but it wasn't something you ever had to make the decision to not do. Uh, great question. And, uh, I think, uh, I'll start with, you know, back in, I'm trying to think in, uh, the year that Ficino was a French team, they, they got busted for EPO yeah. and their whole team was kicked out of the tour. And uh, it was the first time that I, I kind of was re- wondering, like, is this, is this like for real? Like, yeah, what is a systematic doping program? Like, in my mind, it was pull down your shorts, you know, nine guys against a wall and you just, you know, everyone gets a, a syringe in the ass. And so... We had a team doctor on Postal, and um, you know he would give us our hematocrit levels, which is your blood, your red blood cell count versus your white blood cell count, and uh, it can also help you determine if you're getting sick or yeah. if you have infection or whatever. And uh, so, my defining moment to answer your question was that um, you know, Tour of Spain, uh, 1998. He uh, you know pricked my finger at the or everything was behind closed doors. So you didn't know who was doing what, by the way. So pricked my finger and uh, my hematocrit was 46, like okay. on day one of the tour of Spain. And then he comes back six days later and then he, you know, you meet with him again. How are you? How's everything? How's your knee? How's your, your crash? Whatever. Pricks your finger again. And then at the dinner table, he'd slip you a little piece of paper and you'd open it up like a fortune cookie. And it would just have a number on there. It'd be like 42. Huh. You're kind of like, okay, what do I do with this information? You yeah. Know, like, um, now you're getting in my head, right? Yeah. <laughs> Cause now like, okay, I guess you just told me I should feel like shit. So, right. um, so you meet with him again and, and, um, as the story goes, um, I, I said to him as I was walking out of the room, cause he's like, I'm very concerned about your hematocrit. It's fallen very low. And I thought to myself, this is my chance to figure out if we have a systematic doping program. Oh, interesting. And so I turned to him and I said, uh, what do you suggest I do about it? 
And there was like this awkward silence. <laughs> and he said, Anton, and he was a Spanish guy. He said, I'm not a judge. I'm not God. And I'm not your father. Wow. I'm here to make sure what you decide to do, you do safely. And I thought, cool. I don't do that shit. Walked out the door. And I was like, naively, like, so I walk out the door and, you know, of course, two days later, you know, I couldn't hang with the pace and I dropped yeah. out on stage nine of the Tour of Spain. Wow. So basically I didn't get invited to the orgy is yeah. the way I like to put it to my good friends. Yeah. Um, they knew I wasn't going to go there. They knew I wouldn't do that. Okay. So, um, well, it's know, interesting. So of, they only asked you one time though. I mean, they, it, it, um, yeah. so they, it, maybe in their experience, it's sort of a, you're either in or out type of thing. It's not something that a lot of arm twisting, um, or do you think a lot of people got their arms twisted over time? No, I, I think it's just a matter of, uh, you know, again, everyone's personal situation. And if they feel, if they felt yeah. the need to go there or not, you know, which I did not. So yeah. you either take um, the red pill or you take the blue pill and go back to, yeah. But I, 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 I guess at the time I didn't realize that people had the option and to do it or not do it. I thought the whole, the whole team either does it or the whole team doesn't do it. Okay. Just because of the way the Festina team got busted at yeah. the time. So I kind of thought, oh, cool. Like, I guess, you know, we're clean. And, you know, when we we're at the dinner table, you know, even Lance and all the guys, everyone would be like, oh, let's, let's go kick those guys ass, you know, a bunch of dope. We, you know, like we talked about how yeah. we wanted to stick it to them. But, you know, hindsight, you know, I didn't realize, you know, yeah. what, what other stuff was happening. So, so the, even within the team's four walls, the rhetoric was those, those, motherfuckers are doping and let's go kick their asses. Cause we're not. Yeah. 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 For sure. Okay. So it wasn't like a table of pasta and, and um, uh, syringes. <laughs> no. <laughs> For yeah. dessert. No, not yeah. at my table anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I found it really interesting that uh, you kept mentioning hematocrits. Um, I read Tyler Hamilton's book, the secret race. And that was the first time. Cause the, you know, the lion <clears throat> always gets thrown out there. Well, everybody was doing it. And there's two layers to that. Everyone is doing it. As you just said, not everybody was doing it. You weren't doing it. The other side That's of right. that argument is with hematocrit levels, it's not as if everybody could just dope to whatever level they wanted to and move on. So I don't, do you know the, do you remember the, the legal limit of the, your hematocrit level? It was like 73 uh, or something? No. Or 53? 50. Yeah. No, 50. Oh, 50. Okay. Like yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, if you had if you have much over that, you risk dying in your sleep. Yeah. Okay. Your your blood is so viscous. Yeah. So yeah. And so if I'm a guy walking around and I'm at 35 naturally, let's say I've got the ability, maybe I could die doing it, but I have the ability to take on enough drugs to sort of lift my hematocrit 15 points, where maybe you're walking around naturally at 47, 48. And then you only get that two extra points. I mean, I hate to tell you, Troy, but even if you EPO'd, it, I don't think you'd be doing the tour or winning it. You know, of course not. I mean, yeah. Well, and I'm not saying I'm not. You know, I just. Yeah. I think a lot of people think it makes you Superman, and you know, Lance yeah. was always the guy to beat. I mean, yeah. he was always like crazy talented. I mean, you know, far bef before all this ever you know, surfaced. I mean, he was like the guy to beat, yeah. you know, 1991 Olympic trials, 
in Altoona, Pennsylvania, leading up to Barcelona. You know, he was like 19, like he was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So all it's allowed guys to do is basically, uh, get that little edge, yeah. you know, and basically top off that, the, the gas tank. Cause I like to say, yeah, there's, um, there's some people who say that like something like a grand tour, like a tour de France, that it's in some ways safer to do it, uh, you know, with like EPO and things like that, because the race itself is so grueling. Um, where do you, like if, 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 uh, EPO, let's say were legal, uh, were you afraid of the drug itself or were you, were you just from a moral standpoint and, and cheating? Like, where did you draw the line? I mean, I got into sports, my grandfather back, you know, to my, my upbringing in Kansas. I mean, usually put kids in sports to keep them off the streets and off drugs. I grew up with a single mom, right. And she was a school teacher on a school teacher salary. And I was washing dishes, you know, till 1030 at night as a sophomore in high school, trying to earn enough money for my first car. So, I mean, uh, I got into sports in order to be, uh, you know, healthy and, and I just love the competitive nature of it. And ironically, it's kind of weird how it makes full circle. And then you get back towards the top of, um, you know, your sport and then you're now faced with the same dilemma, Yeah, you know, and. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, and I'm not the only guy that was not sure. doping. There's plenty of talented guys out there. You know, my estimates are 20, 25% of the guys, you know, weren't doing anything. And, you know, I jokingly say if I, if I had dope, maybe I would have gotten 86 place in the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 86th place instead of dropping out, you know, right. like that's kind of, it's not like I was going to win the tour sure. of Spain. I was, you know. But that's, but that's an, that is an, it, yeah, that is an important distinction as far as, you know, making a living as a professional cyclist. I mean, the, you know, the difference between dropping out and not obviously is, is being able to pay a mortgage and, you know, to build a life. So there's, there's a lot of people right. out there that get to sit on those, you know, small and large fortunes they made over the years and not, um, you know, because they made those decisions at the time. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So was that the end of it for you? Was it, was that night and then two days later dropping out? Was that the end of your pro cycling career? Well, so I'm, I'm at the dinner table, uh, with, and, you know, it so happened that, uh, you know, Lance was always in high demand with interviews and sponsors and stuff. And I was by myself at the dinner table of tour of Spain and, uh, he comes down, he joins me. It's just me and Lance at the table. And, uh, I, I got thrown into the tour of Spain with, um, a really bad injury from the, the tour of Holland where I thought I broke my femur mm-hmm. and could barely walk. And, uh, at that point I felt like a racehorse, you know, I kind of felt like you go there, you go there, you know, you don't always have say in what you do and where you go and, um, your own athletic aspirations and, and, uh, I was just sitting there with Lance and I'm like, I'm like, dude, I can't do this anymore. You know, I need to get back to the States and, uh, this is not for me, man. Mm. And, and he looked at me and said, he goes, listen, man, like I get it. You know, you should go back if that's what you want to do. And 
that was the year that Lance got fourth. It was his first kind of grand tour, like really big, you know, kind of breakthrough result. Yeah. And I think he, in a sort of way, got it because that was the same year that, you know, he ducked out of Perry Nice after he came back from cancer. And he's like, you know, F this. Yeah, he kind of retired during his comeback, right? Yeah. And the rest of us picked up the slack because, you know, you have – these the teams have contracts with the various uh, organizers and they if the if the postal team is going to like say okay we're going to have nine guys on the starting line and they they have to come with nine guys yeah you know <laughs> so yeah. can't come with like less than that you know yeah. even if some of them are you know injured or sick or whatever and so so i think lance got it you know and i think he had compassion for uh you know that particular moment. And, and, uh, so I came back to the U S called the manager said, I don't know what I want to do with the rest of my life, but this is not it. And, uh, and then, uh, Mark Gorski said, he goes, Anton, I'll tell you what I, I'll talk to you like I would, if you were my son, because you've always talked about going back and getting your MBA. And he goes, I think this is a good time for you to do that. And so I had a contract for the, the, the following year, but I said, if you want out of your contract, no problem. Just wow. let me know. Go home, think about it, you know. And so that's what I did. Yeah. Do you think you do you think all of those reactions were genuine and in and sort of in your best interest? Or do you do you think they were mixed between your best interests uh and the team's best interest in that you had already sort of identified yourself as somebody who probably wasn't gonna uh go on the ride, so to right. speak. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm not sure. I think that, um, you know, I, I certainly, you know, I was, you know, kind of one of the workhorses on the team and, you know, I, I wasn't the best sprinter, the best climber, but I was, you know, always working hard for everyone else. And, you know, while those guys were doing whatever they were doing back at the hotel, you know, I was, taking it for the team and going to meet, you know, postal service, uh, making appearances, autograph signings, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, and so who knows? I'm not sure. And it's, I mean, it's important. Uh, Like was the tour of Spain, the last, was that, was his fourth place in the tour of Spain, the last grand tour he did before he just focused purely on, on the tour on France. But yeah, I mean that's where he. Yeah. You know, then he went on to win ninety nine Tour de France. Yeah. And then the seven years after that. Yeah. Six so, years after that. So you're sort of at the base of the mountain at that point. Things hadn't really gotten totally crazy. There was still a lot of unknown. Um, like Lance hadn't Lance hadn't become Lance. It was a it was a good story. You know, he was right. the sort of People Magazine Lance uh, at that time, not necessarily the you know the world renowned seven-time Tour de France champion, Lance. Right. I mean, yeah. he he was known to all of us as sure. far as of course. his pure talent. Um, he yeah. wasn't known to the outside world yeah. or the American public, I would yeah. say. Yeah, I should yeah. probably say Bicycling Magazine rather than People Magazine at that point, but just meaning yeah. that he hadn't... <laughs> he didn't he have Hollywood status at that point. Yeah, he hadn't he, fully blown yeah. into himself yet. That's right. Um, what do you think... Like, do you think... Um, two things you were close enough to other sports i'm sure but like is do you think doping 
is the same in cycling as like running and things like that? Do you think it's 10 times worse? And if it is, is it like the team aspect of it? Is that what makes it so much worse? More prevalent, not worse, but more prevalent. I mean, I, you know, I always say that whether it's sports or business, you know, everyone's going to try to look for the competitive advantage, Okay. you know, and, and really everyone draws a line in a different place. And, um, you know, I was on an interview with NPR, uh, I think after Lance won his third tour and, uh, the interviewer from NPR said, Hey, let's take one of the, the uh, let's take a call or an, a question from one of the callers. Yeah. Uh, oh, Anton, you know, Lance's former teammate, you know, what do you, what, do you, what would, what would you like to ask? And of course, his first question out of his mouth was, well, you were his teammate, like, is he doping or is he not doping? Yeah. And I said, before I answer that, let me ask you a question. Do you work out? And he said, yeah, I work out. I said, what do you do? I go to the gym. Oh, cool. So when you get back from the gym, what do you do? Well, I uh, take a shower. Oh, okay, great. I'm glad you shower after the gym, but what else do you do? Well, I make a big protein shake and, uh, you know, creatine. And uh, I said, okay, so let me get this straight. So you go to the gym, you rip your muscle fibers apart, you come home and you do a protein shake with creatine. And then you go back to the gym and you do it all again tomorrow. Yeah. I'm like, how? I said, so obviously you've answered your own question. Like you, that's where you draw the line. I said, everyone is trying to find the competitive advantage. Yeah. It's a matter of where you draw the line morally, ethically, legally. And for myself, you know, the, the USOC or the Olympic committee is very clear on what's legal and not legal. Yeah. And so I mean, even caffeine is a banned su- or a controlled substance if it's above a certain number of milligrams for body weight. So you can actually test positive for caffeine. If yeah. you have five cups of coffee <laughs> and you <laughs> have too much caffeine in your system, but yeah. you know, if you have a cat, if you have one cup of coffee then, or whatever. So my point is, is that everyone draws a line in a different place. Got it. And you know, I think, you know, some people think it's okay to come home and do protein shakes or creatine or whatever that you get at GNC. And, you know, but I think obviously it kind of passes that level once you get, you know, past kind of those, what is legal and what yeah. is banned on the USOC list. Do you think, do you think the, um, so I, I get that uh, like me, I, I could decide tomorrow to do EPO. I wouldn't have any idea where to get it. And granted, I'm sure that if you were at that level, you've got people who are always around the, whether it's a track or, you know, whatever, who are willing to give it to you. Does cycling and the team aspects and the control and the coverage that they give you is, do you think that that makes it more prevalent in cycling versus other sports? Or do you think it's as prevalent in other sports? I think every sport has yeah. something that would certainly help them, you know, whether it's, uh, you're a bat by athlete and yeah. you're doing, you know, ski racing and shooting and you got lower your heart rate, you might consider yeah. beta blockers. Or if you're a golfer, um, <clears throat> or if you're in the ice, you know, the NFL yeah. and you need to, I mean, I think that there's probably, yeah. um, you know, something that every sport that can help their performance. Yeah. 
TJ Dillashaw, big MMA featherweight, uh, cut weight down to fight uh, guy Henry Cejudo and then got um, uh, busted right afterward. Um, I think it was yeah. a Cejudo fight. He got busted with EPO. Um, and similar, I don't think he started his training camp thinking I'm going to go dope. And he, he cut so much weight with like two or three weeks left before the fight. He says that he just, he just couldn't train anymore. He just couldn't wake up every day and get to the gym. And so that's what, that's what the EPO, cause everybody kind of looked, it was like, why are you taking EPO for an MMA fighter? That makes no sense. And, and his response was right. like, he, he couldn't, he physically couldn't train. Have you right. ever, have you ever kind of asked yourself like under what circumstances, whether it was more, you know, if you, if you were a, a different level of rider, if the, if the promise, like, do, do you ever wonder or worry what your limit would have been to, to, to take the drugs? Or do you think it's just flat out? There was never, I mean, as they say, everything's for sale, right? Never. Like yeah, if not, no, I mean, it's it, not, it depends on who you are. I mean, yeah. I, I grew up with, again, my, my grandfather was such yeah. a great, and you know, he made such, he thought I was a great little athlete. And yeah. back when I was 10 years old, 11 years old, and yeah, you know, I got in the sport for the love of the, just the competition and, yeah. um, you know, it, it wasn't going to make a difference yeah, I, to me, for me. Yeah, I hear you. Um, I, I can't imagine. I Cheating to me is just something, um, I say especially sports, that makes it seem like I don't think that cheating is bad in other things. That's not what I'm saying. But like where it's especially mano a mano where you're sizing up and, and facing off against another human to say that we're going to go compete in this thing. And then to cheat through that is just, I just can't even imagine how you wake up and face yourself through that. But uh, obviously, you know, lots of people do. Yeah. And I think everyone daily is faced with, you know, where their boundaries are, yeah. you know, whether it's pol politics or business or, you know, yeah. Um, you know, and I think we all need to focus on being the best version of ourselves and, yeah. and be happy with that. Yeah. And, so, uh, you know, one of the, you know, in, you know, one of the defining moments that I had early in my career was in 96, Greg LeMond, who I grew up watching winning three tours. Yeah. You know, he was a spokesperson for the U S postal team in 96. And we had a small, like little, uh, criterium in Germany right after the tour and Jan Ulrich was there and. At the time, again, I was so naive. I didn't realize he was the one that's supposed to win the, the bike race because <laughs> people, because <laughs> it was, you know, those little crits are all fixed. You know, they're kind of like, <laughs> um, people aren't there to see, you know, Anton Viatoro win the crit. Oh my God, that's um, hilarious. They're, they're there to see Jan Ulrich win the crit because <laughs> he just did the tour. So, um, and I got educated very quickly on that. You know, people that no, 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 don't attack, don't attack. Oh, that's funny. But, uh, but the, but the story is I flew over there, I was jet lagged. And then, um, I didn't realize Greg Amon was a spokesperson for our newly formed U S postal team in 96. Okay. And, uh, I see him in the lobby. I'm like, Oh my God, that's, that's Greg Amon. And, uh, he's like, Oh, Hey, like, do you know where to get some food around here? And then I said, well, I saw a place down the street and he goes, 
do you want to come with me? And I said, yeah. So we went to a bar and they had the kitchen was still open. And uh, we basically ordered like a massive steak dinner at two or one o'clock in the morning. And so we're bucked up to the bar and I'm like, great. I'm like, you know, I grew up watching you and all that. And I, it's an honor to be sitting here right next to you, but I have a question for you. And he said, what's that? I said, like, this is my first year as a pro yeah. and my first year racing in Europe. Do I need to do this shit? He goes, what shit? I said, well, do I need, do I need to, do I need to go there? And he knew what I was talking about. Yeah. And he said, you know what, Antonio goes, um, not if you do everything right. Mm. Not if you eat right, sleep right, train right. If you can control everything in your power, you don't need to do that. Okay. And so that made a lasting impression on me. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, and I, and I think, you know, and he was right in, to an extent in that I ended up gravitating towards like a one day World Cup races, yeah. like Perry Roubaix and Tour of Flanders and yeah. Liège, Bastogne Liège. Like those were the races that I, you know, that was my Tour de France was doing yeah. Perry Roubaix. Like, yeah. Like back to the cover of the magazine, right? Like yeah. seeing guys like getting beat up on the cobblestones, like that's what I want to do. Yeah. Why so, is the, why is that race such a freaking widow maker? Like, why is it, is it <laughs> like, d does it just knock your teeth out of your head when you're on the cobbles or, or like why, like, it seems like it, what is it like a DNF rate of 50% or more or something? Well, it's like playing, you know, I was telling my buddies, it's like playing, you know, baseball and Wrigley field. Yeah. You know, or Fenway park, you know, yeah. like it's, been there for a hundred years and it's going to be there yeah. long long after we're gone yeah that's the prestige um, but like why is it such a difficult race to finish and and like is it just the well, cobbles or <laughs> the part that i learned very quickly which they don't show on tv by the way is that you know the first hundred k's is balls to the wall crosswind okay you know sleet snow whatever like just to get to the first section of cobbles is a race in itself and so by the time you get to the first section of cobbles, you're just completely already okay. trashed. And, and is uh, the mentality yeah, there I mean, like get the to the cobbles first so that you're not in a scrum on the cobbles? Is that kind of the mentality? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's like get your leader yeah. to the first section of cobbles safely yeah. and as fresh as Got possible, it. you know, and then uh, after that, it's just mayhem, yeah. you know, bodies everywhere. Yeah especially the climber guys that, you know, come from Spain or, you know, other countries that are not used yeah. to that. So that's a, that's a, but again, back to my BMX, the BMX was right. like, Oh, you know, yeah. You had built up those <laughs> no skills. Problem. This is like, yeah, this is nothing. Yeah. 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 There's a, um, that's a race that I just don't understand. Like talk about like what Americans can um, identify with that to me is a race tailor made for Americans to tune into. And, and for whatever reason, it's just, again, if you're not, if you're not like a lover of cycling, you're just not going to watch that race. Like, I don't know if it's distribution right. or marketing or whatever, but man, that is such an exciting race to watch every year. Yeah, that would be a great one for the American public to, to watch for yeah. sure. So. Yeah. So you, you decide to hang it up um, and you go back and get your MBA, fly back to Denver, um, get your MBA at CU, right? I went to uh, entrepreneurship school in okay. Boston, Babson okay. College. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so you get your MBA. Did you, um, were you living in Boston at the time or did you come back to Colorado? 
Was it like an online type of, or it wouldn't have been online uh, no, correspondence? No, I, I, I basically, uh, I did two more years as a U.S. pro in the U.S. on a smaller U.S. team and uh, kind of helped the younger guys come up. And then I was the, the leader, but I basically just did my my own uh, couple of years of giving back to the sport, yeah. if you will. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I moved to Boston and went to grad school. And uh, had my daughters there and cool. started a marathon in Denver, Colorado. And that was acquired by Denver or by rock and roll yeah. uh, competitor group. And so did you meet, did you meet McGillivray while you lived in Boston? Is that how you ended up with Dave McGillivray? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He would, you know, I was like a, you know, salivating MBA student and I wanted yeah. to like meet the, the guy behind the Boston marathon. And yeah. he actually, he emailed me back within like two minutes. I was like, whoa, yeah. this guy's, I can't believe how responsive he is, you know? He, and, to uh, this day, he's still super accessible. Like <laughs> I can, know. Yeah. I think it's yeah. that Boston sensibility. Cause like Joe DeSena is real similar to that from Spartan race. These guys are just like, yeah. they just, there's no pretenses whatsoever with these guys. That's right. But uh great guy, you know, yeah. and, so Dave and I built the Denver Marathon from zero to 10,000 uh, participants within two years and then yeah. sold it to a private equity group. And, um, you know, it was, and now it's, you know, it's still, well, yeah. aside from the, you know, the recent shutdown, but, um, yeah, but that yeah, was, it's, it's a great event now. You were in that first group cause you started it in what? Oh, six, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that was the inaugural, inaug whatever, however you say that. Inaugural. In, 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 <laughs> inaugural. Inaugural. There you go, inaugural. That's right, yeah. <laughs> inaugural year. You held it for three years or so. You got 5,000 right. 5, athletes in the first year. I was looking on Athlinks, like, wow, that's pretty yep. damn good Pretty damn yeah. good first year. Well, the way we, we market it, because everyone, all the naysayers were like, you're never going to, like, who's going to ever want to run a marathon at, at altitude? Yeah. And I was like, no, no, no. Anyone can run LA, anyone can yeah. run Chicago, like come challenge yourself in the Miley City. So yeah. we we actually we we marketed it as a challenge so that yeah. it was a true badge of honor to come run the Mile High City. Yeah. Yeah. But this was, I mean, so, this is like at the tip of the spear of the big marathon boom. I mean, you guys were a little ahead of the curve at the moment because things got crazy. Around that time, around six, seven, eight, nine, you know, was when rock and roll just exploded and like your grandma yeah. was, yeah. you know, running half marathon, rock and yeah, roll half so marathons. They, uh, yeah, it was an honor that they wanted to uh, uh, brand my event, my baby as rock and roll yeah. and, uh, and then bring me on board as head of operations. So I moved to San Diego and managed basically all the rock and rolls, about 37 events in total. How long did you do that for? So I was there for uh, two years and then um, left to start a software company and then uh, focus on that uh, where I could help other race directors manage their events effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, that was called Race HQ and I remember your launch. It was a spectacular launch and it looked... Um, it was kind of one of those things you and I have talked about this in the past. It was one of those, like, um, it seemed like such a no brainer. Uh, it was a great launch, great product. Great. I mean, your branding was cool. Like everything, everything on it worked really well. Um, yeah. and how long did you run with that ball for? 
seven years. Seven years. And uh, we grew our customer base, you know, from zero. We had a, you know, probably 3,500 race directors using our software. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think we're a little bit ahead of our time, so to speak, with, uh, you know, project management. I was kind of jokingly said that it, project management is kind of like joining the gym. It's is only as good of, or it's only as effective as your ability to stick with it. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, it requires discipline and it, it requires that everyone, you know, adopt it and, and use it religiously. So, yeah. um, you know, similar to, you know, the gym in January versus the gym in, in May, <laughs> yeah. everyone has new year's resolutions. Yeah. Like this is the year I'm going to get fit and this is the year I'm going to yeah. make it happen, you know, but then you got to stick with it. So one of the you know original, um, I think what originally caught my eye and wanted to have you on on the podcast was your post uh, the other day about the new business that you're starting, Performance Coaching, um, which was really interesting. I mean, uh, it, it caught my eye because one, I know your background as a professional cyclist, and two, in the post itself, it had a very unique a much more holistic approach to coaching, which I thought was really interesting. So do you want to, you want to kind of uh, give us the elevator pitch on performance? Yeah. So performance for superhumans, as I like to call it, is uh, based on um, the notion that we are all super and uh, basically taking the principles that uh, got me to the highest level of the sport of cycling and applying those to an ordinary person. Um, I don't consider myself anything special. Um, but I did have vision. I did have the ability to execute and I had the ability to, uh, uh, you know, grit it out and, uh, be tough as nails, you know? So I think hard work and determination is one of the things that's a big part of this. Um, and really the, the part that I'm excited about is, you know, I was kind of my, my, my own science experiment for over 13 years and I made all the mistakes that you can imagine. And, I would say I spent the better part of my career actually trying to figure it out, mm. trying to figure out, you know, when to eat, when to, you know, um, get your massage, when to, you know, how to travel, all those things. And, yeah. you know, so the way that I see performance is really taking the guesswork out of it and really, um, you know, we're going to figure it out together, uh, me and you, and we're going to figure out what's best for you and getting you to the finish line. So, okay. So there's the there's the sort of do's and don'ts process side of massage, diet, when, how, where, et cetera. There's the coaching performance aspect where I'm assuming you're looking at metrics and then determining what's the right workout for the right day and the, you know, the taper and all of those types of things. Um, is there a whole mental aspect of this uh, as well? Are you kind of looking at this thing as much of kind of life coaching as it is performance coaching? Yeah, I mean... It- the the reason that I wanted to get into this was that I feel that, you know, there's, there's plenty of coaches out there that can, you know, read the data and, you know, look at your, your, your watt meter, um, write a training plan and they're all, you know, great, great at what they do. But I, you know, really wanted to incorporate not just the exercise piece, the diet piece, but also the mindset and the accountability mm. So what I'm trying to do here with uh, performance is also create a, a, a community around the be super um, uh, message that, you know, we can 
all support each other in the process of being the best version of ourselves. Mm, interesting. Did you have a coach in your life that, that kind of stands out to you as like, wow, this, this would be this at scale. I could really affect a lot of great people. Well, really, I mean, honestly, when you're a cyclist, there's not a lot of, um, I was just figuring it out on my own. Okay. Um, I guess, um, probably the most instrumental coach that I had, and fortunately just died of COVID recently mm. in Poland. It was Eddie B. He was Greg LeMond's original coach. Yeah, I know the name. And I was, I was very sad to hear that um, just about a month ago in mm. Bella News. And, um, but what I, you know, back in the day, he wrote a book and I, I, you know, read it cover to cover. The thing was tattered like a phone book, you know, and, um, and then I had the honor to ride for him. And he was also the same coach as, uh, he also coached uh, um, not just Greg Lamont, but uh, Eddie Merckx and also Lance, of course. And he was on our yeah. postal team in the first year. Not a bad resume. So, <laughs> yeah. And it yeah. just, we had so many, I had, you know, when I heard of his, you know, when I read his obituary that he passed away um, and I shared it with my sister, I was laughing at, you know, there's things that stick out to me. My very first race with postal I had a stomach virus and, you know, things were coming out both ends and, uh, it was my very first race. So I was trying to impress the team and we're in, you know, of, of all places, we we're in Yuma, Arizona in February doing a preseason race. And basically I hear someone knocking on my door and I open it and, and it, he says, Eddie B have medicine. And he had a really strong Polish accent. And I looked down and he had a bottle of cognac. Oh, geez. <laughs> and so I, we were at a cheap, you know, super cheap motel. And yeah. he, he had me uh, grab a, you know, one of those plastic cups that's wrapped in plastic. And he gave me what was probably the equivalent of like three shots of whiskey. Oh my gosh. And uh, he made me drink it. And, and I did. And my stomach was burning all night, but sure enough, I woke up the next day and I was fine. No kidding. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so he knew what he was doing, I guess. Wow. You know, that's, that's called old school coaching right there. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. What is the, like, what does it take? Um, what does it take to, to be a great performance coach versus like a, you know, the Bill Belichick's in football where it's, you know, strategy, tactics, all those kinds of things. There's certainly that aspect of it, but where, you know, like if you're coaching me, um, to get through whatever a mountain bike season, let's say, what is it that, um, like, how are you going to help me? It just has to be a, a comprehensive, you know, perspective on that, athlete and it yeah. can't be just about you know here's your workout so it just it, can't so you're it changes yeah. athlete by athlete oh for sure I mean, yeah if you were to you know work with me troy i would say you know you know what are your goals objectives you know stuff like that of course but then you know do you drink um you know, what kind of food you know do you drink yeah what kind <laughs> of food do you eat you know how how's how's your sleep patterns yeah you know, are you do you sleep with a full seven, eight hours of sleep or are you waking up in the middle of the night, you know, and just really you weigh yourself every morning? Yeah. Cause I, sus know, I, I suspect there are some people who are just like, they've got the motivation, the self-motivation side down, right? There's, I have no problem getting out of bed at four o'clock in the morning and putting in five hours, but I'm also just like 
hammering the same way every day, you know, turning myself inside out. I have no idea of what I should be doing. And that's not me, by the way. I don't hammer. I don't turn myself inside out for five hours a day. And I certainly don't wake up at four o'clock in the morning. Work-wise you do, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but is that, so do you kind of look at it that way? Like, okay, out of the 10 things, you do these three things really well. So I don't have to necessarily worry about those, but here's a deficiency that you have that I'm going to try to fix. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I have connections with the best in the business as far as, you know, getting orthotics, getting bike fits, you know, blood work, all those things that helped me along the way when I was racing. And, you know, like I said before, you know, I'm not the guy that's going to do the bike fit, but, you know, just there's things that I can immediately spot that need to be addressed. Yeah. And so those will be the thing that's, that's where I can, you know, really gain years on what it would take for yourself to figure those things out. Yeah. Um, you know, and the other thing, Troy, I, I feel that a lot of people, and I'm guilty of it too. We, we, we all put our head in the sand oftentimes and we're, we're not, you know, we're not, uh, looking ourselves in the mirror, so to speak. And, you know, I have friends that are like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to weigh myself because, you know, I, I don't want to know. You know, <laughs> I, I know when I'm overweight because my jeans are, are too tight. And yeah. No, no, and that's not, you know, and I, and I say that um, it's not even about that necessarily. It may be that your weight is fine, but it might be that, you know, you go for a run and you come back, you weigh, I always weigh myself first thing in the morning after I use it, you know, after I use the bathroom and buck naked and. And before I do anything else, mm. and then after I work out, I come back and I weigh myself after my workout. And you'll be surprised when you look down at the numbers and say, wow, I lost four and a half pounds of body weight yeah. on a, you know, on a 10, 10 K run or whatever. And, yeah. and that just, it's good information to know. And so that, you know, the, the rest of the day you need to hydrate yeah. or you need, you know, so, so I think, you know, between weight, you know, there's all, there are all those things that you need to keep in mind, weight and sleep and your, you know, what you're putting in your mouth. And, you know, I used to have a rule, a rule for myself that I would never eat after 8 PM. Not one thing would go into my mouth after eight o'clock at night. Mm. And that way you sleep better. Um, you know, it's good to wake up with a little bit of hunger, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, now with like inter gonna... intermittent fasting and all that stuff, that is sort of all the rage now these days is really limiting that intake after a certain hour and, and going a certain number of hours without, without having to worry yeah. about digestion. Yeah. And I, you know, when I look in and I'm not an in, in, intermittent, intermittent faster at the moment, but when I look back at my habits, um, when I was bike racing, you know, if you think about it, if, if my last morsel of food was at 7 p.m., and, you know, that's after a six hour ride and you're just, you know, you're sleeping at that point, nine hours at night. Yeah. So by the time you wake up in the morning and actually have breakfast, it's, it's been 12 hours. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, you know, it strikes me the um, like youth sports, baseball, football, basketball, all of these, these kids now, I mean, you see these ridiculous club programs with you know, nutritionists and, and massage and all of these other different things and the, just the massive explosion in, I guess, revenue on that side of the, the, the youth sports side, but it, I, I have not seen the same in youth 
um, running. I mean, heck, youth running. I mean, take, you know, like Olympians who are literally like sleeping on the floor of a buddy's house kind of thing to train and things like that. So the that, the difference between the haves and the haves nots, are you looking at that side of that kind of deficiency in the holistic network of wellness um, for endurance sports? Like, are you looking at the youth side of this or is this more... Um, you know, the 40 year old trying to do Leadville or more the 18 year old who's trying to become a, a pro cyclist? Well, I can certainly work with the 18 year old that wants to be a pro cyclist, no problem. But, you know, my passion, I would say, is definitely the age grouper, you know, someone that is in their 40s and, or maybe they're not in their 40s, maybe they're in their 20s. Yeah. Age doesn't matter. But, you know, just, um, I think to your point, there's not a lot of infrastructure for endurance sports in our country. And it's very different here than it is in Europe, by the way. Um, in fact, my, my teammate on the U.S. Postal, Vyacheslav Ekimov, he explained how he, he was a Russian guy that you know, did the Olympics multiple times and gold medal winner. And he explained how he went through a sport school. I'm mm. like, sports school? What's that? He's like, they literally... They separate you and they, they say, you're going to be a gymnast, you're going to be a cyclist. Mm. And they, they put you in these um, programs at a very young age. And he was one of 10,000 that didn't crack. Wow. So they put you in, so they put you in the program. You're with 10 other, 10,000 other cyclists. And then there's, you know, three, three, <laughs> three final uh, athletes wow. standing. And he was one of them. He was, you know, and still to this day was and has been one of the best, uh, you know, cyclists out of Russia. So we just don't have that here in the yeah. U.S. with endurance sports. Yeah. So, and it's very much like that, uh, obviously, with uh, football, uh, soccer now, which is nice to see, which yeah. wasn't that popular, you know, 15 years ago. But my daughters, they all play soccer and it's a it's definitely a system now yeah. that has been put in place. So we just don't have that system for endurance yeah, I'm, I'm personally curious about this. I've got, um, we have a, a podcast scheduled with um, a coach and, and I, I have this very specific question, which is I know, I know a coach would be good for me, but here I am 49 years old. You know, I've been racing at some level now for, I don't know, 17 years or so. I've had a coach for a very brief time and I'm, I always wonder like, why don't I have a coach? But it's, but it, but it's not something that, um, I don't know. I, I, it, like everyone not, needs, I, I mean, even I could use a coach at this point. 100%. I mean, and, that, and that's my point is just, that I know that I need it and yet I don't have it. And I don't know why I don't have it, I guess is my point. And that's, it's kind of frustrating to me because every time I talk to someone like you, my first reaction is like, God dang it, I got to hire a coach, especially if I'm going to do some of the things that I want to do in the next 10 years, you know? And uh, yeah, so I don't, I, I and I think part well, of it I is think, availability. Yeah, certainly it's that. I mean, but I think um, we all have the need to, you know, improve and get better. And, and I think that, um, you know, I think we could all use different types of coaching at different times, whether it's a life coach or a business coach, you yeah. know, I think we get so, we get so stuck in our head 
and or a routine or what's comfortable and it's really hard to see ourselves from the outside yeah and uh that's why i say even i could use a coach yeah from time to time you know like anton what are you doing like oh yeah you know i need to stop doing this or start doing more of that but yeah and just getting that kind of non-biased feedback yeah so, so so I've I've thrown my cry for help on the table now. So the the um, I will be happy yeah, to help you. No, and so like, I, but specifically <laughs> for performance, I'm I'm really curious because I I really um, uh, I hold you in very high regard, and I know you would be a phenomenal coach, and like you just have the you know the demeanor, very patient, very um, you know, kind of slow and articulate through things. But like, what is? Give me a picture of like your ideal customer. You know, again, is it the the in my case, you know, the forty nine year old who's saying, okay, I've got you know, over the next two three years, here are my goals. I wanna I wanna do you know, bad water. I want to do Leadville. I want to do these epic things. And, and, um, at the same time, kind of, you know, here, these are the ages of my kids. This is the business that I'm running that type of thing. And then you help, you know, so like, what's your ideal situation? Well, next, yeah. I mean, next, so if you go to my website, antonviatoro.com, you'll see, you know, our tagline is, you know, we're fitness fanatics, endurance junkies, Peloton peddlers, health nuts <laughs> of every shape and size. Yeah. Gym rats, outdoor badasses, and game changing athletes. And my hope for 2021, as we come out of the current um, situation with COVID, is that, you know, we are back in action next year and we have events. I love, you know, I think that um, there's nothing more motivating and more inspiring than to see the average person, you know, cross the finish line, you know, and their loved one there with a dozen roses. And, you know, we plan to help thousands of people accomplish that next year. So um, I was just talking to an old colleague of mine that works for Tough Mudder. It sounds like they're going to be back in action as early as April. So, um, you know, I think that we're we're all going to be frothing to to do that next race next year. So you just said thousands is, is the scale of, of, um, performance, like, is this a, is this a business you're building where there, you're going to have five people you're coaching, 500 people, 5,000 people? Like what's, uh, what's the idea? So we're going to have three tiers. Okay. Troy, we're going to, right now we just rolled out the kind of exclusive one-on-one training, yep. which is going to be working with me directly. Um, but I'm also working on a content library where it's going to be kind of more, for the masses of, um, you know, we're going to have a knowledge library where you're going to be able to, you know, see videos and get nutrition plans and be able to, you know, kind of join that membership program. And then, uh, also kind of doing that middle tier, which will be a group, uh, you know, live workouts and lessons in nutrition and motivation. Nice. So, nice. yeah, so there's going to be something for everyone, just kind of depending on how much access or yeah. how much time you have in your day and what you want. Got it. So and you had mentioned earlier something about the community um, that you'll be coaching. So I would assume then there's like a way where as I'm getting coached, I've got almost like a, a peer level of coaching in a way where I can talk to other athletes that you're that you're helping. And maybe maybe there's a handful of us all training for Leadville or something like that. That's correct. We're going to have a Facebook uh, community page. So you're going to be able to be a part of that as well. Cool. So our message is be super. So yeah. our, we've just designed our kits and we're, we're getting our 
you know, our tech tees and all the gear, um, which will be on, on our website as well. So, cool. yeah, you'll be the, you'll be the so town bull of for, coaching. <laughs> I hope so. Troy. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I'm excited though. You know, it's just, it's an honor, you know, it's kind of funny how life makes full circle. And, uh, you know, I didn't want anything to do with bike racing, yeah. you know, um, after I left it after, you know, spending 13 years, uh, and, uh, it's funny now, how that works. I'm just like, it's yeah. And I, and I think it's so cool to see, you know, like the yep, younger up and coming, you know, whether it's my daughters or, you know, my neighbor's son, that's 13 years old and mountain biking and yeah. just, eyes are this big, just, you know, salivating to, uh, you know, get some feedback on how to be a better mountain biker. So, yeah, you know, it's just, yeah, it, it, it's the right time. And, and I think that, like I said, 2021 is going to be a, a great year. So. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I, I don't have anything against team sports. I certainly grew up with my fair share of team sports, but the thing that I learned in as I started getting into endurance sports and then as my kids have grown, the autonomy that's required, the self-reliance, the, you know, all of those things that are required of a, of a person, but certainly of a child and adolescent, you know, that are, you have to get out there, you know, it's kind of like wrestling in that way where you just have, there's nobody can't blame the quarterback for the pass being too low. You can't blame the, it's on you, man. And if you didn't put in the hours and the work, it shows, you know, there's just no hiding behind um, complacency or laziness or any of those things. So. That's right. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that, that is the reason I got into cycling or BMX back in the day is I used to, I I hated when I had a great, you know, T-ball game or, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then, and then some other kid let the ball get go between his legs. Damn and it, we Timmy. Lost her. Yeah, <laughs> like you know. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely, and you know, that's probably also why I become an entrepreneur is just <clears throat> you know being able to control your own outcome. So yeah, it's exciting, man. I'm excited for you. I think it's gonna. I think good things are gonna come out of this for you for sure. Yeah, well, thanks, Troy, and I appreciate your time. And uh, I'm excited about your new podcast. Well, I'm ex- cool. Yeah, I'm excited about your new venture. We'll have to we'll have to keep tabs along the way, and uh, yeah, maybe you can help get me over Hope Pass in the in Leadville 100 or something or whatever I decide to do. Badwater's <laughs> Badwater ultimately is my bucket list. I, I don't I don't know that my body will ever uh, be able to run 100 plus miles, but uh, we'll we'll put a we'll put a race on the on the map and and figure out uh, how you can help me get through that. I would love to as long as there's a coronas at the finish line right there. <laughs> there's always <laughs> always yeah dosekis for me corona for you. That's right. Yeah, but cool, the street man. tacos will definitely be there. <laughs> well, we're about the time where we normally cross a finish line here so we we uh, do a little 10 question dash. You ready to answer some questions and uh let yeah. uh, let the listener in on your 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 mindset a little bit here. So questions are pretty right. easy. Just only <laughs> honest answers uh, are accepted. Ready? All right. So okay. here we'll we go. Best. So next race: uh, two wheels, two feet, two paddles on your paddleboard, your stand-up paddleboard. 
Oh, I think uh, I think I'll have to go to Rosarito and do the 50 miler down there from Rosarito to Ensenada and have some uh, tacos and some Coronas. Boom. Okay, sounds delicious. Uh, favorite sport, movie, book, podcast, documentary. Favorite sport. Uh, I'm kind of into surfing lately and, uh, I've been watching a lot of that now that I live in San Diego and I've been watching a lot of the, the pro tour and, uh, it just, there's nothing better than being out on the ocean and seeing, you know, dolphins and nature. And, um, that, that's what I would say. Cool. All right. Uh, favorite race. The Denver Marathon. Favorite race. Yeah. It's gotta be Perry Roubaix, no? Favorite race, yeah, that would definitely have to be Paris-Roubaix. Yeah. Uh, God, I mean, this is this is a question. It's funny for you me to even ask you, but your bucket list race. My bucket list race. Um, you come at this one from a different context. Most of it's just like, uh, wow. you know, us schlubs bucket going to sign up race. for a race, but... You know, well, no, I don't want to commit myself to that, but <laughs> I was about to say I've never done an actual marathon. Okay. Um, and my daughter is an amazing runner, so maybe Uh-oh. I'll have to say that. All right. Maybe Boston Marathon. Okay, very good. Since Dave manages it. Yeah, there you go. Home stretch song or band on your playlist? Do you listen to music while you run or race? What was your question? The Your favorite, uh, your home stretch song or band on your playlist? Who gets you across the finish line? Oh my gosh. I, you know, that we'll have to do a separate podcast on that because I am a music guy. Are you? Okay, I me have too. My old school music and my new school. Um, yeah, I, I can tell you a few bands if you would like to hear them. Yeah, let's hear who's, who is the band? You are, you're, you're, uh, you're well, racing the, with your daughter. Uh, you're on mile, uh, 25. Well, well, back in the day, like, you know, Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, oh, yeah. like, just, you know, before time travel, right? Yep, yep, but, yep. Okay. You know, U2, The Cure, Depeche yep. Mode, okay. you know, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting talking to a guy my age, and it's all the same bands. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who's the most embarrassing artist you got on your uh, playlist? Uh... I won't say it's embarrassing, but you might be surprised that I've seen Billie Eilish twice in oh. concert, and well, she was amazing. Right? Okay, but I have daughters, so I, I went yeah. with them. So I have an excuse. But my, she was a great artist. Oh my, my, gosh. my daughter was all teed up, and then COVID happened, and we uh, we had to not do that concert. So that was a bummer. She missed that one. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, pre-race ritual or superstition? Well, it's been a long time. Yeah. Um, but I used to wear new socks before every bike race. But that's okay. when I was sponsored. <laughs> it made it easier. <laughs> now you got to go buy a $30 pair of Stance socks yeah. or something. It gets a little pricey. Yeah, new socks. Got to yeah. wear new socks. Yeah, all right. Live, living or dead, who would you most like to share a long ride, run, surf with? Living, living or, or dead. dead, who would I want to hang out with? Yeah. I'd say, you know, Bono or... you or, uh, or Robert Smith of The Cure. Okay. I'd, those guys would be interesting. That's the second vote for Bono, actually. Um, yeah. All right, man. Final question, Anton. What is the secret? Oh, wow. The secret is um, to really be a person of integrity and to always 
put your your best foot forward and and never give up. Nice. Never give up. Yeah, the integrity certainly stands out for you, man. That's good. I like that answer. Well, Anton, I told you we were going to take a little ride through your brain today. So thanks for thanks for letting us do a little long ride through uh, through the life and <laughs> times of Anton Viatoro. Thanks, brother. Appreciate yeah, indeed. it. Indeed. Thanks, Troy. Yeah, it was great to have you. I appreciate you sitting down. I'll be in San Diego. Hopefully, hopefully once the weather turns a little bit warmer, so we definitely got to grab some uh, fish tacos down there and um, maybe a couple of beers. That sounds good, dude. And that is the show, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, more people racing, more often having more fun in the process is our mission. Thanks again to Anton Viatoro for sitting down with us and sharing a long ride through his life. We do a special post for each episode on Instagram, so look for the post for episode 19 with a dashing picture of Anton. Uh, if you have any comments or questions, we are at Athlinks across the board or shoot us an email to podcast at athlinks.com. The best way to support this show is to first subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or click follow on Spotify. Second, share it with friends far and wide. And third, take a quick minute to give us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes if you dig it. So until next time, happy racing, everybody.